When we talk about the gospel around here, we're talking about the message that, that Christians believe, that we can't work our way to God, so God came to us. That in Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man, God came and he lived among us, he lived a perfect life, he taught the perfect way, and then he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he was crucified, not just as an example of love, though he was certainly that, but he was crucified for our sins. He became our substitute there. He took the hellish punishment that we deserve and he offered forgiveness to us for free. Uh, we had already fallen too bad to work our way to God. So he came and he gave that forgiveness to us as a gift, but we have to receive it. And the way we receive it is not by the works that we do, but first by grace, which means it's a gift from God. And then also through faith, which means that we trust in him to receive it. So we don't work our way to God. We turn from our sin and our unbelief and we, we turn to trust in Jesus. And if we turn to him, believing in what he's done for us, then he completely forgives us. And this is great news because it means that we can have the relationship with God that we were meant for. It means that we can have it for free. It means that there's nothing that we do to get it, nothing that we add to it. It's all grace. It's all a gift. And this was the good news that the Apostle Paul was traveling the world spreading at the time that he wrote Galatians. He had gone to the city, city of Antioch in Galatia in modern-day Turkey, and there he ministered to a group of new Christians that was for the first time really a mostly Gentile group of Christians. Jews and Gentiles converted to Jesus there as well as everywhere, but this wasn't in Jewish territory. It was mostly a Gentile church, and so they were trying to figure out the new dynamics of what it looks like when the gospel goes to a place like that. And now as people were converting to Jesus, Paul made very clear that they didn't need to convert to the Jewish culture. They didn't need to convert to the Jewish ceremonial law. All of the Jewish ceremonies, ceremonies like circumcision, were symbols of what Jesus would do for us when he came. And now that Jesus came and he did that thing, the symbols aren't necessary anymore. And so it was really up to them now if they wanted to keep the Jewish feasts, if they wanted to follow those Jewish ceremonies. And, and this is a freeing message. This meant that people from all cultures could come in and, and believe. But there was a conflict a conflict with a group of people called the Judaizers. And these were people that were really very closely connected to the Pharisees during the time of Jesus's ministry. Acts 15 verse five says that the Judaizers were from the party of the Pharisees. Um, some of the Pharisees had kind of accepted the message of Jesus had said, yeah, okay, we, we've tapped out. We believe this Jesus is real, but they remained convinced that to enter God's kingdom, you must also become Jewish. You must follow the ceremonies, you must follow the diet code, you must follow circumcision. And they were making major waves. And their beliefs became a major movement. The message of the Judaizers was becoming mainstream. And this message didn't just create an unclear gospel, but it created an alternative gospel, which really wasn't an alternative gospel. It was, it was a false gospel, a gospel that couldn't save. A few years back, I did like a, a keto diet, which um, it was like five years ago or so, where you're basically eating protein and fat and, and just no carbs at all. And it actually worked really well. I lost like 30 pounds really quickly on that diet um, with the big rule that you just can't have carbs on it. And, and after a number of months of doing that diet and being really successful with it, I decided to modify it just a little bit by reintroducing carbs. And so at that point, you know, I was, still, I was still doing all the other stuff. Like I was eating lots of fat still. I was still eating lots of protein. 
So I was basically doing keto, but then on top of that, in addition to that, I was also eating all kinds of carbs. And it turns out that doesn't work. Like it turns out, <laughs> turns out that's not the keto diet at all. Even if I could find the keto diet in that, it doesn't really help. And those pounds are back and they brought their friends. And so, <laughs> and what was going on with, with these Judaizers is they had this Jewish moralistic religion. You have to do all these things, follow all these ceremonies, work your way to God. Then they hear this message of the free gospel that we can have by believing in Jesus, not by adding any of our works, any of our ceremonies. They embrace that message of Jesus and then they change it just a little bit by adding back all the works and all those ceremonies. And now this was not an alternative gospel that works just as well. It was a gospel that couldn't save. It was the same old thing that they were doing just with a little Jesus added to it and it didn't save them. And so Paul was preaching that you need Jesus plus nothing else to become a Christian. And the false gospel of the Judaizers said that you need Jesus plus your own observances. And those were two very different recipes for salvation. And so now for 14 years, Paul's been preaching the message of free grace in Christ, but he hears that up in Jerusalem, these Judaizers are starting to hold sway with a lot more people. And so he makes a trip up to Jerusalem. He brings his ministry partner, Barnabas. Um, he brings a Gentile convert to the faith named Titus. And he doesn't want to be on a different page than that church up there. He doesn't want to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, only to have it being undermined among the Jews. So, so he makes a trip to privately meet with some of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. And so Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul goes up to have this conversation with the church leaders, and they say, okay, so here's Titus. He's not Jewish, doesn't have Jewish background. He's now a believer in Jesus, just like we are. Does he need to convert to Judaism? Does he need to be circumcised? Does he need to follow our rules? And they say, no. There's no reason for him to follow all those ceremonies. He has Jesus. And so that's a good outcome, but that outcome required a courageous stand because these Judaizers were all over the place. Verse 4, it says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So there's some conflict here. The Judaizers are all around. They're trying to bring the whole Christian world back under the bondage of the ceremonial law. And so a little bit of a fight needs to be had here. Now sometimes we think, well, you know, if there's conflict in a church, it must not be healthy. It must not be on God's mission. It must be a toxic environment. And certainly churches that are embroiled in conflict can feel toxic and can be toxic if they're fighting the wrong battles with the wrong methods. But conflict has always come with church life. And there are the right things to, to argue about. There are the right things to take a stand on, namely the truth and the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was willing to pick this fight for one big reason, to preserve the truth of the gospel for the Galatians and for us. 
something was really, something really big was at stake here. Big questions were, were at stake. How does a person get their sins forgiven? Is it through Jesus or through Jesus plus the ceremonial works of the law? How is a person redeemed? Is it through Jesus or is it through Jesus plus a lot of our own effort? Are there two gospels or is there just one? Should there be a separation between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Is there one Lord, but two tables? Is there separate fellowship? Do Christians need to keep the Jewish ceremonial law? These are all really big questions. Do we need to keep the kosher laws? Paul never says this is his motivation, but another big big thing that's at stake here is, is bacon. Like, are we free to enjoy bacon? Paul's down in Antioch and he hears that they're trying to take away our bacon up in Jerusalem. So he's like, I got to get up there. I got to go take care of this. I got to fight this battle. It takes a William Wallace stand that you can take our land, but you'll never take our bacon. And, and so a lot of what we believe and what we practice is at stake with what's going on here. And, and in seriousness, the gospel message, the message that saves and unifies was worth fighting for. It was too good to lose. It was too good to have it just absorbed into yet another religious system that puts you on a treadmill treadmill of maybe being obedient enough to please God. The loss of the gospel would have been way too much to bear. Grace is far too good to lose. But it's often opposed. And it's often opposed by good, clean, religious people. Because when good, clean people hear that nothing we do makes us okay before God, that no obedience makes God owe us anything, and that we're utterly dependent on a free God who gives his grace where he wills, we can get mad at that. Because we, religious people, we we start to lose our control. We lose our ability to tell God that he's obligated to do something for us because we've been so good. And this is such a danger for us. It's a danger for church people. We can think that all of our singing and tithing and serving and working and opening our homes and studying our Bibles and praying and doing mercy work and evangelism, we can think that all of those things can somehow earn God's approval. That they can make us the elite and better than others type Christians. That those things that we do can make us the real full Christians, unlike all those others. And we can even start to think, well, God must be in my debt because I've been so good. But if God owes us something, it isn't grace at all. It's a debt. And God is not anybody's debtor. In fact, when we do good to get God to to do something for us, it's almost a subtle attempt to change places with God, to get God in our service, to become the one who can call the shots while God is the one who does our bidding because he has to now that we've been so good. We never really think this all the way through, but sometimes we're being good because we want to be God. We want to be in control of God. But Christians are people who are always utterly dependent upon God's grace. Good, clean people can start to resent God's grace because they don't want to acknowledge that what we need from God is something that we don't deserve, something we could never earn, and that whether or not we get that blessing is completely out of our control. Good, clean people sometimes can avoid repenting and trusting in the Savior because they think they're already okay because of their religion, because of their moralism. They miss 
what grace really is. And so Paul here won't have it. He won't allow us to go through life thinking that we deserve God's grace while at the same time thinking we're the ones who don't really need it. He won't allow us to go through life thinking, well, those other people, those really need God's grace. They don't deserve it like I do because I'm keeping the ceremonies. He won't allow us to go through life deluded into thinking that I'm so awesome that God owes me one. And Paul here is willing to lose a lot of friends and garner a lot of enemies to make sure that we know what grace really is. Because people who think that they're okay on their own or that they can make themselves acceptable to God by the things they do will miss God's grace altogether. It's really only the ones who recognize that they're totally unworthy of it who receive it. So verse six, it says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the end result of this little meeting in Jerusalem is that the apostles, James, John, and Peter, all approved the gospel that Paul was preaching. They added nothing to it. They welcomed him and Titus without any other conditions, no conditions of of having to become Jewish. And they said, we all believe the same thing. We're all one. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's just one table. We're all together. Just go out and remember the poor. So you had this unified church serving the global community, particularly in these hard famine times that were going on during this time. Paul actually, one of the reasons he went up to Jerusalem was to take an offering that he had collected from the Gentile churches to give it to the poor who who were in the middle of a famine in Jerusalem. So they're all serving the world together. The church was unified by the gospel. They're doing good together. They're loving their neighbors. They're looking different in some ways. There are some some churches that are far more Jewish and some churches that are far more Gentile. And so some different cultural expressions happening in those churches, but they're all loving the same Lord. They're all loving and serving their neighbors. They all care about the least of these. They care about the poor. The grace of Jesus had done this amazing thing that had never been done. It had united Jew and Gentile, two groups that could never be united before. Grace had compelled them all onto a common mission It had motivated them to care for those in need. It had made strangers into family. It was a big win. This is what the church is supposed to be. So Paul and the crew go back to Antioch, and then Peter came down to visit, and it was clear that this battle wasn't over yet. And so, so verse 11, it says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
so Peter comes down and he, he visits the church where Paul's based in Antioch. And at first, everything's fine. There's still one Lord, one gospel, one table. Everybody's unified. Peter's glad to be there. And you would expect this from Peter because God specifically told Peter, this is how it's supposed to be. In Acts chapter 10, God gives Peter this vision. And it goes like this. It, he's up on the roof of a house. He's praying. And it says, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. So Peter had already had this vision, and the point of it was not just that you can eat bacon now, though, again, pleasant side effect. The, the point of the whole thing is that the Gentiles were now being called clean in Jesus. That, that Jews and Gentiles were not going to be separated in the kingdom of God. That there was supposed to be a welcome to everybody. You don't have to become Jewish first to be a Christian. And Peter believed this. And even the text in Galatians doesn't seem to indicate that he ever stopped believing that that's true. But then it says some visitors came down from James. They claimed to be the followers of James up in Jerusalem on James' mission. Turns out they actually weren't, but they were claiming to be from James. And they brought that Judaizer message. They came down to Galatia and they're saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. And Peter did not sign off on what they were saying but he started living like what they were saying was true. He stopped eating with the Gentiles. He wanted to keep those really influential people happy. He drew back and separated himself and wouldn't eat with all these Gentile converts because some really important people thought that they were still unclean, that they were not real Christians, and he didn't want to upset them. And this was a big movement. Verse 13 says that all of the Jewish Christians started joining in that hypocrisy, including Barnabas, the guy who was there on the mission with Paul. So again, it's second verse, the same as the first. The, the gospel is again at stake. A false teaching has become a fashion. But as Chesterton says, fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. And the whole health of the church is at stake here. This is why truth matters, because heresy and, and untruth first distort our view of the gospel, and then they start to distort our view and treatment of one another. Personal beliefs don't stay internal. We're always acting on our beliefs. Those things always end up coming out. And often the result of false beliefs is the destruction of the Christian community. They harm people by causing division, and the more we're divided from one another, the more susceptible we are to further unraveling. And if people believe and stick to the message of the Judaizers, it'll create a faith here where the Jewish are the elite real Christians, and the Gentiles must climb the ladder of Jewish practice to ever come close. If they believe this message, they'll believe that there's a group of Christians that are forever unclean, forever sinful, forever second-class citizens. And that can't be believed in the church. Now, there isn't an exact parallel to this in our day, but I think the, the errors of both white supremacy and critical race theory 
both do something similar. Those errors actually both create a people who will always be unclean, people who will always have to do more work to be as acceptable as we are, and sometimes no work will, will, never, will ever be enough because you're still not right. Both schools of thought take the unity that's granted by grace and they replace it with maybe unity, maybe someday, maybe by works, perhaps. So false beliefs can, can have all kinds of implications for the health of the body. And so, so here, the, the gospel that saves is at stake, the health of the church is at stake, and also something's at stake for Peter personally. I mean, Peter, you know better. You know the Lord. And so Paul, in confronting Peter here, is motivated both by his love for the gospel and his love for Peter. His goal here is not just to win an argument. His goal is not to publicly humiliate Peter. He, he doesn't say, hey, watch me, guys. I'm going to go own Peter. He confronts him because of what's going on in his heart. He wants to win Peter back. He wants to clarify the gospel in Antioch, and he wants to clarify it in Peter's heart. Peter's about to get back on this endless staircase of legalism, which will only wear him out, steal his joy, leave him wondering who knows what about me, leave him concerned about appearances that can never be maintained. And so Paul gets up and publicly calls out Peter, and he says, Peter, first of all, you're not living this stuff. You're not really keeping the kosher laws. You're not really keeping the ceremonial laws. I saw you ordering a Baconator at Wendy's last week, so don't pretend like, like you're somehow not doing all these same things. You're a Jew who doesn't live like a Jew, yet you're withholding your fellowship from Gentiles who don't live like Jews. And that's hypocrisy. Notice how Paul's not passive-aggressive. It's not vague gossip. There's not like a casual distancing from Peter or verbal undermining his work behind his back. Because the gospel was at stake, he confronted him straight on with no games. And Peter does need to repent. This seems to be a besetting sin for, for Peter. It seems like fearing people more than God is his problem. I mean, remember the night of the crucifixion when Peter denied that he knew Jesus because he didn't want a servant girl to turn him into the authorities. Peter seems like again and again, he just wants to be a nice guy. He just wants to keep everybody happy. And as a result, he falls into the sin of hypocrisy and participates in dividing the church. Which, by the way, is a warning to us. That we can always fall back into the old sins. Under enough pressure, with, with our eyes off Jesus, we can go right back. We can go back into the things that we were rescued from. I had a, a casual friend about, about 25 years ago or so who his whole testimony was his story of how God had rescued him from alcoholism. And, and it was absolutely true. Like he had a number of years sober. He was following Christ. It made a huge difference in his life. And then a bunch of us just kind of lost touch with him. And we were shocked to find out a bunch of years later that he actually died because of his alcoholism. And, and that can happen. It can happen where we fall back into the very things that we were rescued from. And, and that's what's going on with Peter here. And even the fact that he, he was in a high position of church authority where Jesus specifically commissioned Peter, you feed my sheep, that didn't keep Peter from falling. So it's a warning to us. And remember, Peter here has not changed his mind about the gospel. He's still acing the theology test. He still believes in the right gospel. 
but he's living like it's not true. He's acting insincerely, he's play-acting, he's being a hypocrite, he's saying he believes one thing while acting like he believes another. He's not acting out of conviction, but he's acting out of the fear of of a pressure group that the Judaizers had become. So to rescue the gospel, to rescue the church, and to rescue Peter, Paul calls him on it. It was important to do because verse 14, he says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. These people who claimed to believe the gospel had conduct that was out of step with it. And this is a really powerful truth. And it's a really relevant truth for us that that the gospel that we get for free also frees us to live in step with it. That we don't become Christians by our conduct, but our conduct must be in step with our Christianity. Grace is free, and grace is freeing. And think of the ways that Peter's life has gotten out of step with the gospel here. He, he believes the gospel, but he's acting like he doesn't with his fear of people and his incessant desire to keep them pleased. I mean, if the gospel says that we're already accepted by God, why the need to be accepted by people? Why is that such a strong drive in your life? That, that's not driven by the gospel. That's conduct out of step with the gospel. Peter believes the gospel, but he, he's acting like he doesn't with his legalism. Because if in the gospel, Jesus provides everything we need to get to God, why do you act like people who follow those ceremonies and do a little bit more are somehow closer to God? He believes the gospel that unifies everybody as as we throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ and he makes us one family. But he's acting like he doesn't believe that gospel by participating in the division of the church and living out active disunity. So his conduct is totally out of step with what he believes. And Christians are supposed to be people who believe the gospel and whose conduct in response should be in step with the gospel. In fact, this is the biggest way that our lives change is by looking again and again to the gospel. Everywhere you look in the New Testament that we're told to do something or not to do something, in the near context, we're reminded of the gospel. And the reason for that is because the gospel message, the message of what Jesus did on that cross for us is our model for living and also our power for living. And so when we wonder how we should live, we look to the cross of Jesus. We wonder how we'll ever get the power to live that way, we look to the cross of Jesus. So a few examples. For one, the Bible calls us to forgiveness. Listen to what it says in Colossians 3.13. It says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So notice it says to forgive. There's the command. And you say, well, what does forgiveness look like? Look what the Lord did for you. Here's the gospel. Look at what he did. Live like that's true. Live in step with that. Ephesians 4.32 says the same thing. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, how could I ever forgive this person? Well, the power for that comes from remembering how Jesus forgave you. What does forgiveness look like? It looks like what the Lord did for you. How could I forgive? Dwell on the gospel, dwell on what Jesus did for you, and then your life lines up and and you start to live in step with the gospel. 
Scripture does the same thing when it commands us to be humble. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, there's the command. What does that look like? Where do we get the strength to obey that command? Verse 5, he preaches the gospel. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does humility look like? Look to the gospel, look to the cross. That's that's where we see what it looks like. Where do we find the strength to humble ourselves? By looking to the cross. And we live in step with the gospel. It does the same thing when it calls us to love our spouses. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Okay, what's that look like? Where do I get the strength to do that? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What does love for your spouse look like? It looks like the love that Jesus showed you on the cross. Where do I go for the strength to love my spouse? I look to the cross. The Bible does this with love and hate in general. 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So he first loved us. Talking about what Jesus has done for us. And he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What does that love look like? He first loved us. How can we love? Because we've been the recipients of the love of Jesus in the cross. Anywhere that there are imperatives in the New Testament, the do's and don'ts, they're always accompanied by the indicative, the announcement of what has been done for us in Jesus. And this means that the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, if really taken into our lives, should be the single most life-transforming thing that there is. The assumption is that we spend the rest of our lives learning to walk in step with it, learning to live like it's true. And so it's absolutely worth contending for the truth of free grace. And it's also worth contending for the freedom that comes from believing in grace. And so it's worth asking ourselves now whether our lives are in step with the gospel. What in our lives does not look like the attitude of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus? In what ways are we not in step with it so that we might repent, confess those things to God, and receive his forgiveness?